Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. We've got a brand new Secretary of State for Education, which means it's goodbye to Gavin Williamson. We're talking categories in a sector, and there's new research about students to stay local after graduating. It's all coming up. You know, throughout Gavin Williamson's term, um, it felt very much like there were lots of sort of secret, unclear agendas that, you know, he was doing with the department and, and leading with the department. And the sector really didn't know what was coming at them day after day, month after month, week after week um, with, with, you know, the department. And so hopefully... <laughs> Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us reshuffle the policy deck. As usual, we have three fantastic guests. On his way to Brighton, it's Andrew Hargreaves, co-founder of our friends and fellow travellers at the mighty Data HE. Andrew, your hire to the week, please. Oh, well, uh, great to be here, Mark. It's got to be my helicopter ride over London uh, yesterday. Not only giving me a fantastic perspective on our great city, but uh, obviously just be mindful of what was happening uh, down below as I went over the, the, the streets of Westminster. And pictures on Twitter uh, look fantastic. Um, and in London, it's Hilary Jebia-Babio, Vice President for Higher Education at the National Union of Students. Hilary, your hire to the week, please. I'm going to cheat and do my highlight of last week because I haven't done too much this week um, yet, but... UK's annual conference was good because I got to meet all of these sector heads that I'd been speaking to or um, lobbying at <laughs> for the past year. So great to see some faces in person after a very long time. And we met for the first time in person as well. That was a real, real pleasure. Um, and somewhere deep in the wilds of southwest England, uh, no one quite knows where. It's Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. That's DK to you and me. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, it does have to be uh, Team Wonky getting together for the first time in a year and a half. And uh, it was lovely to see all of you, even you, Mark. And, you know, it was just nice to catch up and to go from being a virtual organisation to being in the same room and arguing and uh, conversing and discussing. It was just lovely. I can confirm it was a delight. If you hadn't said that, I was going to throw that in myself. It was so fantastic to see everyone after everything uh, the last couple of years. It's so um, fantastic. Right. Start the week with Schrodinger's reshuffle. It finally came. Hillary, talk us through it. Gavin Williamson is out. One of the big sackings of uh, the surprise reshuffle yesterday, which was a surprise to some, not a surprise to many of us in the sector. Um, and we're now getting used to being introduced to even um, Nandim Sahawi, who is our new Secretary of State for Education, um, who's still going to be working with Michelle Donnellan, the university's minister, who's now got a promotion um, and now attends cabinet. So there's lots of stuff to think about going forward, what Nandim Sahawi's agenda is going to look like, what that's going to mean for the spending review coming up, um, and ultimately what the relationship between government and education is going to look like now that Gavin Williamson is gone. Um, so lots to think about going ahead for the next few months, year. We'll see what happens. Right. So, Andrew, do you think uh, the sector breathing a bit of a sigh of relief on this one? 
Uh, well, that that was exactly the words I used uh, yesterday, Mark, when I was with with some friends. Uh, I said that you can you can probably hear not just from the sector, but the entire education sector, a sigh of relief uh, as the country let out its air. Um, so I suspect so. I, uh, uh, I I have a tendency to not to not want to attack or damage public public servants, but I think there's there's got to be a sense uh, from across the sector that this hasn't been the best time for for policy, uh, for setting a sense of direction. And so I, I suspect the majority of people think this is a, this is welcome news. And, and DK, there's been a few other minor changes so far. So at time of recording, we don't have the full lineup of all the ministers and, and their briefs, but there's been some other changes at DfE that are worth noting, aren't there? Well, we have to talk about Nick uh, Gibb. Um, the long parliament of 1640 uh, was the first four-year parliament in English history. history. True, true, and fact, it's, true fact. True fact. And it saw Nick Gibb appointed to the school's brief at the Department of Education. There was no schools at the time, but he just hung around for a bit. It does feel like he's been there forever. Um, he's not exactly um, widely liked by the education establishment because after all he is a conservative and the education um, establishment do tend to lean in the other direction but he's been respected he's done i mean by all accounts a decent job under near impossible circumstances and he has gone so that was the big shocker for me he's like um a fixture and uh fitting at uh dfe and um, Michelle Donlan's been promoted to to attending cabinet, which was I don't think anyone saw coming. And there's some speculation this morning that she might be taking on uh, an expanded role, including FE, maybe including some of Nick Gibbs' role, something like that. Mm-hmm. You st- keep saying nobody saw it coming. I've been saying for weeks Michelle Donlan's going to end up in cabinet in the reshuffle. Uh, she's just not, clearly just not as university's minister. Yeah, well. just not as university's minister. There is a um, a history of university's minister um, attending cabinet, this, but it's difficult to see why Michelle is in the cabinet unless uh, Boris is planning a serious uh, focus on HE and FE. So that is absolutely one uh, to watch. The other speculation that, uh, and the other thing to watch that I'm thinking about is, uh, is of course, what happens with the SPADs. Now, something's, something quite big has changed in Whitehall in the last couple of years, which is SPADs are now appointed by number 10. And uh, we've got, we've, well, we've had Ian Mansfield working for Gavin Williamson. Ian Mansfield, uh, sometimes of the, of the wonky parish when he's not in government. Um, Ian Mansfield, uh, for, for Gavin Williamson, also supporting Michelle Donlan. Um, some speculation about whether he'll be he'll stay on um, or not, probably. And the, the informal speculation is that he, because he's essentially appointed by number ten, and uh, and they and they kind of they want him there. And with Michelle Donlan having an expanded role, pretty much all of her kind of non-COVID stuff from the last uh, the last couple of years, all the, all the policy that's come out that has has not been about COVID has been pretty much classic <laughs> in Mansfield. I mean, it's been you know it's been. Uh, it's been straight from uh, 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 you know all of our, our favourite um, white right wing uh, educational culture warrior. I don't know how to describe him. That's, um... Yeah, it's it's absolutely Mansfield's world at the moment in uh, DfE. I mean, it is uh, good news for him uh, personally if he is being kept on at uh, DfE along with Angus Walker, who is of course Gavin Williamson's other spad that did the media stuff. Um, he would, I think, find it difficult to get an, um, another ministerial support role in the current government because his CV says he was the man that supported Gavin Williamson. Uh, not really the kind of thing you want on your CV if you're looking for a, another spad role, I would 
I would yeah. suspect. But remember, as I say, he works for number 10. He doesn't work for Cameron. Indeed so, indeed so. Yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm trying to be, you know, cautious and and optimistic um, about about this new appointment. I, I know that Nadim Sahawi has done a lot with the the vaccine rollout, and I think largely, and um, people have viewed that quite positively. And so I'm hoping that in the same way that he was sort of open and and quite constructive about how he he did that rollout, I I feel that at the very least, what I what I would hope for is an open, transparent, renewed relationship with the sector, and rather than this sort of um, you know conflict an approach that Gavin Williamson took during his term in office. I, I I do hope that, you know, coming up to the spending review, he really uses that as a chance to re-engage the sector and, and make a mark with um, really trying to, to, you know, show us his commitment to, to actually working with us and rebuilding um, higher education and, and education more widely in a way that actually speaks to the major concerns we've been speaking about for years. So hopefully no more sector secretary of state battles and, and more collaboration and working together but we won't know until he he really lays out his agenda he does seem a more serious figure doesn't he andrew yes i'd say so i mean as hillary said he's um he's got this reputation more recently built around around the vaccine program uh, for which he's established some some personal credibility and certainly when he's uh, certainly when I've seen him making contributions in public about any policy area, you you just get a sense of, uh, yeah, a more, a more solid, grounded individual. If, if I can pick up that that um, point as well about, about hope, I mean, to be really candid, my biggest hope is that we get some clarity. I, I think ambiguity is, is, is the enemy of success. And, and I have to say in this recent period, I felt we've never been through a darker period of ambiguity for the sector. And so, so if anything, I, I'd just like to see not some, not rushed, but, but a clear policy direction that, that we can start moving to this next period with a greater degree of confidence about what it looks like, looks like not, not just for HE, but, but for the broader education sector as well. So that, you know, I do, I, I welcome him. I, uh, I welcome his appointment. I've got a very open mind about what it might mean. And I think as a sector, we should welcome a new contributor in this space um, and, and be open to that. But I do think he's got to deliver on deliver on a policy direction because I'm not sure we can cope with much more big ticket ambiguity. And and if I may jump in on that, I, I think that's so important. I think you know throughout Gavin Williamson's term, um, it felt very much that there were lots of sort of secret, unclear agendas that you know he was doing with the department and and leading with the department and the sector really didn't know what was coming at them day after day, month after month, week after week. Um, with with you know the department and so hopefully um having that clarity and having that sort of openness which i hope that he will have um will just get us in a much more stable place about what he's trying to achieve and how we can work together to sort of um start to think about you know what that what needs to be achieved going forward um so i really hope it's not sort of a, a term that reflects what gavin williamson sort of uh, uh portrayed as something that was you know very unclear i remember there was a lot of you know press photos of him showing himself to try and like look serious but not really telling us what he was doing um and so hopefully clarity and and a, a clear direction but most importantly i think collaboration with the sector um is going to be important and I think there's a lot of relationships that need to be renewed and um, <laughs> restarted even after Gavin Williamson's reign of um, insert any adjective adjective that you would want to um, put there. 
<laughs> in, in it, the blank. It bodes well as well, I think, because I mean, he's quite he's he's reasonably well known to the sector. I mean, it, just in his most recent role as vaccines minister, there was a lot of a lot of back and forth between uh, mm. universities and 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 his office. Um, and then going back to his time as um, uh, is it is it is it young people's minister, DK, or um, children's minister? Yeah, it was um, uh, children's minister. Um, a role in which he was um, almost immediately followed by um michelle donnellan of course that's right and then um actually when he was on the the biz select committee um his as um jim points out on the on the site this morning his questioning about the the brown reforms um showed that he was at least engaged uh, and curious about how uh the, the nine thousand pound tuition fee might end up getting out of control for taxpayers which uh, uh he, which which actually does put sandham apart a little bit because that was that was not the prevailing uh, sense at the time and it actually does- Hillary, your couple uh, of your predecessors, sorry to interrupt, but a couple of your predecessors have said on Twitter the last 24 hours, uh, so I've seen both Aaron Porter and Tony Pierce say um, when they were at NUS engaging, engaging um, with, with him that uh, they thought he was thoughtful and engaged and, and um, you know, easy to do business with. So I thought that was encouraging yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I reckon that in the political, the political climate that we're in, um, especially the one that has been created within education, at least over the past few years, um, hope, like having somebody thoughtful, you know, is is something that is going to be so important. I think uh, having to come up against, you know, such a political staunchness um, from Gavin Williamson, who funnily enough, we never got a face-to-face to with or Zoom call with, um, you know, it, it was hard to manoeuvre where we could find points of collaboration and working together and actually it not always being sort of political sparring, but actually um, it looking like a productive way of speaking and moving forward um in the work that we were bringing to dfe and to the minister and and hopefully the secretary of state by extension um so you know i hope that that trait is something that he still carries with him and i'm yet to meet him and and when i do i'll you know hopefully get a better um sort of gauge of who he is and what he's like but until then i i i think we're you know, it will be a good thing to keep open-minded until he sets the tone that he wants to, you know, carry his tenure um, through with. Well, if, if I was advising him, I would say that it's it's an absolutely kind of no-brainer to to go and re- rebuild some of the bridges that have been kind of torn down in the under the old administration because you know getting having a good relationship with the sectors that you work with as as a secretary of state is only a good thing it's only going to help advance your agenda um it's only ever smart politics to do that so you know you should be high on his list of people to uh to to meet in the in the coming weeks and months and i i do hope that um the advice gets through because i think you know there's 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 clearly there's clearly a lot of rebuilding work to do dk sorry i cut you off there did you want to carry did you want to say something else um, I was just saying that the idea of um, having a minister that is uh, focused and engaged with the detail is, um, I would argue, possibly a, um, a lowish bar, but it is great to have somebody uh, coming over the top of it. I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff about uh, Nadim uh, uh, Howie. He was, he's been um, a rising star for a long time. He was tipped by the Independent as a member of the Cabinet of 2020 as far back as 1997 when he was a councillor in Wandsworth. He's done a lot of interesting stuff, not all of it entirely as respectable as the image he currently likes to portray, so I would strongly advise you to take a look at mine and Jim's article for some of his history with uh, Geoffrey Archer, for instance. And there's a couple of other points. I mean, as I say, the, the reshuffle is still ongoing, but there's a few other things to note. I think the 
the the appointment of uh, Nadine Doris to the the culture uh, department is. Wow. I mean, I, I think that sort of puts the um, that that makes that department squarely the kind of culture war department. It seems to me, um, particularly with Liz Truss off to uh, as as foreign secretary, um, which in some ways I think is good news because I think one of the worst kind of outcomes for the sector would have been if you know one of the big culture warriors had been appointed as secretary of state for education so if if some of that silliness is happening elsewhere in whitehall that's that's probably good news for us time will tell though time will tell time will tell um right let's see who's been blogging for us this week Oh, hi, Mark. Uh, it's Jim from the team. Um, now, look, normally what we do at this point in the podcast is edit in uh, a contribution from uh, one of the people who's been writing for us, from our fantastic community of contributors, uh, someone that's been writing for us on the site. Uh, but this week, just before we get going properly with, you know, the kind of uh, big rush of stuff uh, into the term, um, I just wanted to say that um, I think you should write for us. That's right you. Uh, You might be someone from a sector agency, you might be someone senior in a university, you might be someone junior in a university, you might be someone that works in a student union, you might be a student, someone that works in around the higher education sector. The point about Wonky is the whole thing is that we're trying to open up the higher education debate to hear from people we don't normally hear from, um, to get new ideas uh, into the mix, to hear opinions that we've perhaps not heard before, um, fresh perspectives, Um, from people that we've um, perhaps not uh, heard from before. So whoever you are, um, we think you've probably got a blog in you. And, you know, if you've got an idea for a blog, um, just drop us an email, team at wonky.com. One of us will pick it up, either me or DK or uh, Debbie or uh, Matt from the team. One of us will pick it up and we'll do all we can to support you with your pitch uh, to get onto the site, to get your ideas out there, uh, and to, as I say, advance the higher education debate. So that's team at wonky.com. Really looking forward uh, to seeing your pitches. Cheers. Now, DK started a big conversation in the sector about how we categorise universities. There's a lot here. DK, talk us through it. So, I mean, the way we think about the sector, uh, the idea of pre and post 92s, the idea of the Russell Group, the idea of all the other mission groups, it's about. Th- 30 years old. It's a way of describing differences between providers that existed um, in the early 90s. And I would argue that there's so much has changed in the sector. I mean, not least the um, regulatory changes of 2017, the Higher Education and Research Act of the same year. Um, the sector is not the same place. And yet we're still, and I know I'm still in the visualization that I do for the site, using these labels like Russell Group and uh, Post-92, which I'm arguing don't really mean anything anymore. I mean, mission groups are lobby groups. They are a group of providers that come together to make a particular argument, not necessarily a group that are coming together because they are similar in any way. And there's lots of providers that are not in mission groups. There are 451 uh, providers that are regulated as higher education providers in the UK. Uh, there's a huge scale of difference. So on the site, what I've tried to do is to pull together some categories that are suitable for thinking about particular types of uh, uh, provider now um, rather than 30 years ago. And it kind of feels like the kind of thing um somebody new to the sector, like, for instance, a new minister of some sort, would 
find particularly helpful. So um, it's a consultation. It's not like I'm setting out this is the final answer. I've had lots of useful conversations with, with people around the sector. I hope very much, and I'm starting to have a lot more conversations with people that are interested in this topic and are interested in the way we conceptualise and talk about the sector. So it's been uh, fascinating stuff so far, and I'm keen for other people to get involved. Andrew, do you think that we'll be able to move this forward? Do you think we'll be able to build some consensus about a way forward with this? <laughs> well, I suspect the short answer to that is no, but not that's only because reaching consensus is, as we all know, very difficult in, a, in our sector. I mean, can I just say, I, I really enjoyed uh, reading DK's articles and classifications, not least because it just prompted me to think about something which I, given we're in the data business, obviously we think about comparison groups and, and uh uh, peer groups, etc. In, in data I, I see, analysis, I assume you have your own. I assume you have your own. We way. do, we yeah, do, yeah. and and actually, we go for a very, very uh, perhaps simple. And, and and again, I don't don't see consensus on this, but we think that actually this concept of reputation or status, however you want to think about that, but certainly academic uh, intake credentials are a big part of that. And so we use a simple tariff model to help us understand that that's not to in any way suggest there aren't other uh, more complex variables at play. But um, yeah, no, I, I think you will struggle to get to get consensus on it. But as I said, that, that's not outside of the norm, norm, norm for the sector because there are just so many sensitivities around what, what this stuff means. I think what does matter is that people do think about universities in this way you know they have some frame of reference whatever that is whether it is 30 years old or whether it's just from their own experience of attending they tend to cluster uh, universities together and it's why we use the tariff model because when we look at the data the most common feature we can see whether it's about mobility or whether it's about uh, outcomes whether it's about uh, attainment there's there's a correlation between the academic status of the student applying and where where they apply to and, and that that's Certainly some correlation in that, so we tend to we tend to use that. But I really did enjoy just uh, you know just just reading the classifications, getting a sense about this this diversity. But but doesn't it also tell that story about just how wonderfully rich and diverse for a country this size uh, our HE system is? I mean, it really is impressive. Yeah, it really, yeah, really, really shows that it's, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I mean, Hillary, I'm interested to know what your kind of frame of reference is when you think about different types of universities. And we've been talking a bit about how this work applies to student unions as well, and how uh, different types of student unions exist in different types of university, and in, in in often ways that are counterintuitive. Yeah, so I, I try not to think too much into the whole Russell group and um, post-92 um, groupings too much. But I think over the past year, I've sort of been forced to do so um, as to understand how decisions have been made and how, you know, different people have been navigating the pandemic um, over the past year. I, I do think that there's something interesting around reframing what that looks like. I think the Russell group still sort of remains this tightly knit group that want to make decisions all together and, you know, sort of still have that back, you know, back room that they make all these decisions in and then they press release something. And I, I would really welcome, you know, an approach that doesn't necessarily look at people for sort of historical legacy, um, because we know that even with that, there's some <laughs> issues and controversies there. Um, but I, I also, th I, I think it's important that moving forward, we think about, you know, what is the vision that the sector wants to take going forward and how might that inform the way that different institutions, um, you know, think about themselves and group themselves together and work together. I am particularly interested in how this is all played out in terms of um, what institutions are needing, especially given that, you know, 
I hear day after day from small and specialist institutions, many of which um, host art co- arts courses, um, how worried they are about the government agenda to see if it will be continued. But the government agenda around low value courses and, um, you know, the impact that that would have on them. And I, I reckon there's something around that that is transferable beyond looking at you know, Russell Group or Post 92 or, um, you know, some of these regular descriptors that, that we hear that don't necessarily make sense to people that aren't within the bubble of the sector. So I'd really welcome um, a much more productive and fluid, actually, way of thinking about the sector, especially um, given that, you know, the big lesson I think the sector needs to learn going forward around this um, area is that, you know, if they're going to do anything, it's better that they do it together rather than in a disjointed way where they're sort of grouping themselves separately and not communicating so i i reckon that's really important hmm all right dk how, uh, talk us through what happens next so um we're hopefully going to be doing a range of articles on the site i've been contacted by a load of people including somebody who had written an in entire master's level thesis on this very question um and we could we're going to be uh, publishing some of that. We're going to be trying to use these classifications in the data presentations that we do. So if you see Wonky talking about, say, the Russell Group as a group of institutions, we probably deserve some kind of a black mark there for not getting into the spirit of this. And we're just going to see how it uh, plays particularly with this narrative on low-quality courses. There has been a tendency in the past to think um, a quality university is a Russell Group university and every, everybody else is a bit suspicious. That's not the case. There are lots of great quality uh, courses in the sector. And I, even though we seem to be moving towards using the OFS's proceed metric as a way of uh, finding them, which if you plot on one of the graphs in the article, you can see a, an almost perfect inverse correlation with the number of students that come from a state school background. So if you're, all of your intake come from private schools, you're much more likely to see them stay on and do the full course and much more likely to see them get a good job afterwards. And that's not necessarily any facet of the quality of the university. So um, I'm just hoping we can expose some of our underlying assumptions about different kinds of providers and just look at the sector with um, a fresh lens. And you can read more about that uh, on wonky.com. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's a hidden history of HE. Strange rules for regulating the lives of students uh, probably reached their peak as the university started to modernise. And one of the things that brings that into sharp relief is when different kinds of people come to university. So... There's a a major phase after Oxford uh, has uh, admitted women and students have returned from after the First World War who are more mature, more engaged with the world, about how the university can control their lives. So there's a a great moment where the uh, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford from 1920 to 1923 decides that he's going to ban 11s because he's decided um, that this is a, a frivolous thing for students to do. They shouldn't be doing this. He's going to ban them. And so he starts working out how to do that. And he gets this petition in from the women's colleges um, complaining that um, students 
couldn't stand, stand the strain of going from nine to one without sustenance. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, he thinks that it would probably be a good idea if they practice social austerity. But if you look at the rules that students are having to deal with in the, in the 30s, they're just wonderful in terms of the depth. And students get this kind of panoply of bits of information telling what they can or cannot do, where they can stay, um, what they can bring with them, what they can do. So they're not allowed to, to bring a car. Now, current residents of Oxford will be delighted by the notion that it was very clear that you get a small slip of paper saying don't bring a car to Oxford you're not allowed but the rules go on to set out all sorts of other things you can't do um, undergraduates will not loiter in the streets at coffee stalls or at the stage door of a theatre um, they will not take the chair at any public meetings they're not allowed to set up magazines without permission um, this whole set of rules about um, not being allowed to take part in acting unless you've got permission uh, no one is allowed to um, visit any bars uh, strictly for, forbidden from going to any of the bars in the city um, and there's a set of rules for how you have to organise um, dinner parties uh, flying is not allowed without proctorial permission um, you have to go and get leave before you do that. What, of course, is scary are the rules they've uh, come up with for how to handle men and women being together. So there's a whole set of rules about the amount of chaperoning that the, the women members of the university, the, the women who've just become undergraduates for the first time are allowed. Um, they have to have a companion approved in advance if they are to meet with a man student. Um, and they're certainly not allowed to take them uh, to their room. Um, and there's a whole set of these kind of rules that, that work, work their way through. Um, parties of men and women undergraduates may not be held unless each woman undergraduate has previously forwarded to the proctors the written leave from the principal of her college. It is most important that academic dress should be worn. So the prospect of organising all of these things is, is great. Now, there's a, there's, I thoroughly recommend Jane Robinson's Blue Stockings books because it, it, it charts out how people actually were quietly breaking all these rules and, and, and living with them, and that, that not all of them were, were actually enforced. But there's a real tension here about how the university has decided that it is looking after people. Now, we've seen off a minister who was excited about the notion of in loco parentis. And for those of us who've looked at this kind of rule, this is what in loco parentis meant, this kind of controlling of students' lives, and I think we should be very glad that we're not trying to do that now. Now, the UPP Foundation has new research about uh, students that stay local to a university after graduation. Andrew, talk us through it. Yes, Mark, this is, as you say, the research by the UPP Foundation on what, where and what students choose to do after after graduating with this uh, start number of 51% of graduates remaining in their local university area. But I have to say the most uh, uh, poignant part for me was was the call for greater data transparency. Um, that we seem to not be alone in data, actually, in calling on the people that we characterise as the data barons to be more, be more liberal with data so that we can uh, can we can understand better what's going on and that the sector can make better decisions and choices around that data. So a really interesting uh, research piece. Uh, but as I say, for me, the striking point being how do we get access to more information so we can we can understand these uh, these patterns much, much better and respond more effectively. So so just just unpacking that a bit, what talk us through the patterns that we, we can't unpick with the, the data that we have. What is the what do we need to collect? 
Well, well, interestingly, I'm, I'm pretty sure the data's there, actually. I mean, I was, I was reflecting on this in terms of, um, uh, so it's not that the data's not there, it's just, is, is it available in, in a safe way uh, for individuals? Uh, but I was reflecting on what we can see as data HE because we get to see that individual level provider uh, data when we're working with them. And so that, that critical information about, well, not only did they stay, but where did they come from? How far did they commute? What were their qualifications uh, when they entered? So it, there's something about that input data of, of what was the source of this individual because I notice in this research of course they've got this understanding about about the outcome data and and where the individuals live in at graduation but I think stitching together that that geographical understanding of where did I come from was I mobile did I cross one of the, the domestic borders uh, and then what did I did I choose to do because I was particularly struck by the characteristics of the four universities that, that were uh, explicitly drawn out and, and as data HE we're very aware of how the actual composition of their student body in terms of starting geography is incredibly diverse and that will have a huge influence on whether or not they stay stay in the local area or not so definitely there's something about stitching together that where did I you know what was my starting position and what was my what was my end position I mean it, it sounds Hillary like that that would be crucial to understand I mean you, you you'd probably dream about having that that kind of level of data yeah, I think it's so interesting, actually. I, I think the more that I um, think about graduates and I don't I don't I don't necessarily think about graduate outcomes so linearly as, you know, finding jobs. But when it does come to jobs, I I do find it interesting yet unsurprising that a lot of graduates do choose to stay um, in their local areas, especially because, you know, throughout university, I think sometimes what we don't talk about enough is that, you know, what students do outside of the formal requirements of their course, especially in the cities, towns, areas that their institution is in, um, often offers them a lot of skills, a lot of connections, a lot of relationships that enable them to really, you know, figure out what they're, they're doing going forward. And, and that geographical point of, you know, students staying in those cities as opposed to, you know, moving back home or going somewhere new um, is a reflection of, you know, first of all, what opportunity looks like geographically, um, but also it, it, it's really telling to think about what students sort of perceive as um the, the role of university in marking out their independence and, and what that means for how they um, make decisions about their, their way forward. But um, I think it's lots of interesting data to look at. And I, I think it will be useful, especially um, the more I get to, you know, meet students, speak to students and, and see what they're thinking about, especially in, in whatever is going to come out of, of the pandemic era um, that we're in. Mark, can I can I just add a, a just a, a point of further interest, mo mo mostly about two two particular geographical areas that that jump out for me. The first is Northern Ireland, uh, because I think this this work has an interesting, uh, you know, lens on it around. Uh, uh, areas that have number controls and we, we all know about the size of migration of young people fr from Northern Ireland so I think there's there's not just a you know there's clearly a student picture around that but there's also a picture about uh, that that economy and, and what it means for the long term of a, of a of a country like like Northern Ireland so I thought that was a really interesting kind of perspective and similar for Wales as we know Wales students are incredibly mobile uh, in moving across the border uh, into England 
So again, I thought that was an interesting take. I mean, for, for those many of us in the sector, we, we recognise that the Welsh Government's probably got one of the strongest, most student-centric funding models and arrangements for where people are allowed to study. So I thought that was in a, a really interesting way that this, this data and this perspective could be used. And I'm going to be really keen to see what happens in Scotland. Of course, most Scots stay, stay in Scotland as the supply of places are just about kept pace with demand, but we're just about to enter an area in Scotland where demand will, will outstrip supply. And so again, it'll be interesting to see, uh, not least in the in the considerations around independence, what, what happens to the, the nature and culture of Scottish HE as it deals with the potential of more of its young people crossing the border south into England to study. So I thought it had these extra dimensions that were particularly fascinating around around economics, culture and, uh, and the politics of the UK. So the thing always with these reports is to think, OK, why now? Because, I mean, the problem of uh, poor quality data on um, where students come from and where graduates go to is a long-lasting one. We know how many students at the University of Reading come from uh, Botswana. It's 10. We don't know in public, at least, how many come from Berkshire, which just seems to me like the wrong way around. We should know more about the kind of students that are attracted to a particular provider and where they come from. Uh, I think it all plays into the levelling up agenda. The, 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 this perception in higher education that students come from all kinds of places, they go to their... Um, uh, university in some random place in the UK and, uh, live effectively in a student enclave and then they go off and get a job in London. And obviously for the majority of students, that's, uh, not the case. So what I think this report is trying to do is it's trying to make the case for, uh, two groups of students making a positive impact on their local area. And the first is, uh, commuter students, the one that's, the ones that live in the place that they grew up and they commute to study and then they come back and then they work and live and uh, build a life in the place they uh, grew up. That's hopefully letting that place up. And the second group of the people who stay in the place that they were an undergraduate for the rest of their uh, career and level up that place. Um, it happens a lot, but you can only really see it. And this is an important point that this report makes and in almost direct contradiction to another report on a similar topic that's coming out later this week, uh, that this only works if you ignore the idea of graduate salary as a proxy for, the proxy for teacher quality, which has always been a bad idea and is something if we're going to do serious policy at place, uh, um, about place, we need to give up. And I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I don't want to belabor this, but there's also going to be just coming down the line in the next, you know, possibly months, policy aimed at refocusing funding towards outcomes. Um, and there's some in the sector that would be on the very far end of the three of you that would say would, would kind of quietly argue that we probably there's we don't want we don't want too much data because the government might do some silly things with it. Uh, the the uh, government has always done silly things with data. It always will do silly things with data. But the important point and the point that I think that we all agree is if it's open and transparent data, we can all do those same things and we can spell out exactly why they're silly and exactly where the problem is. Um, open uh, data about the sector is really, really important. There's a lot of it hidden under the protection of um, autonomous providers, uh, commercial in confidence, which arguably should not be. And there's a lot more stuff out there we should know about the sector because ministers already know it and are making decisions based on it. 
So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Hilary, Andrew, DK and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.